If you would please uh, open your Bibles, we're going to be in First uh, Peter chapter two this morning. First Peter chapter two is we're going to we're going to end up. So if you want to get your Bibles open and ready for First Peter chapter two, that's where we're going to wind up this morning. But I do want to read just one one sentence, basically out of 1st John as we start 1st John the end of 1st John 2 verse 5 and verse into verse 6 1st John 2 last half of verse 5 into verse 6 by this we may know that we are in him whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Obviously here, who is the he that we're talking about? Who is it? Christ, right? Jesus. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. That reminds us some of what we've been talking about in our James study even, right? On Wednesday nights. A faith that what? works. If you say that you abide in Christ, well, there ought to be something that we can point to in your life that says, yeah, you, your, your walk matches what you say. If you say that you abide in Christ, your walk ought to also, you ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Believers ought to walk in the same way that Christ walked. We've also been talking in James a lot about suffering and trials, haven't we? That's, the book of James is loaded with, with teaching on trials and suffering and dealing with those things as a Christian. And so this morning, the main point that we want to emphasize together this morning is that believers ought to walk through suffering as Jesus walked through suffering. And for that, we're going to look in 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. All of Jesus' life, if we're honest, all of Jesus' life on this earth could be considered suffering, couldn't we? Even, even the best day that Jesus had from a, from a human perspective on this earth could we not say that for, for Christ, that was a day of great suffering? What did he come from? He left, he left heaven, right? What does Philippians 2 tell us? As you, as you think about that, Philippians 2, you can, you can just listen as I read a few verses from Philippians 2. Verses 5 through 8. Philippians 2, 5-8 through 8 says that we should have this mind among ourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. And here again we see that same, that same emphasis that, that 1 John had. This is who Jesus is and so as believers we should have the same mind as Christ had. But listen to what it says. Who, thought, who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but made himself nothing taking the form of a servant, 
being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of a cross. So we, we think about Jesus' life here on this earth. There wasn't a day that he experienced as he walked the earth that would have been anything close to what he had experienced with, with God in heaven for all eternity. His entire life was, was one of, of humility and, and suffering. Everything that he experienced on this earth was, was far worse than anything he experienced with his Father in heaven. So, how did Jesus walk through suffering? That's what we're going to look at together this morning. And for that, we'll read together, starting in verse 18, into the, to, well, the end of the chapter there. 1 Peter 2, 18 through the end of the chapter, verse 25. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. He's already been talking about dealing with the government and, and things. Peter is, is teaching us how to interact with, with people who are in authority over us. And so now he moves on to servants. Be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For, the, for this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures, endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? Peter says, if you have suffering as the consequences of your actions and you endure it, well, that's no, that's no great thing, is it? You deserve it. You, you earned that. So man up and take your punishment. Nothing great, nothing extraordinary about that. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. We can always point to things in our lives that are not good, and we can always trace the suffering that we have, and we can always, we can always look at things and say, oh boy, we've, we brought this on ourselves in some measure. We've, we've earned this. But, but think about that in Jesus' context. If you do good and suffer for it, that is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Jesus was, was the only one who was good through and through, right? Even when, when he interacted with, with men on the earth and one said to him, good teacher, and he says, whoa, whoa, why do you call me good? There's only one that's good. Obviously, he himself was that one that was good. But, but even on this earth, Jesus acknowledged the fact that there's only one who was good. And so now we think about that as we move into Peter's teaching about the suffering of Christ. Keep that in mind, that he did good. He, he earned none of that suffering for himself. He brought none of that down on his own head. He was good. He was holy. He was just. He was righteous in all that he did. And then Peter, in verse 21, moves on to the text that we're going to focus on this morning. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, 
Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So how did Jesus walk through suffering? Verses 21 through 24, we're going to spend the majority of our time this morning. That's one, one big long sentence in Greek, one, one complete thought that, that Peter is communicating with his readers. How did Jesus walk through suffering? First this morning we want to see in verse 21 that Jesus walked through suffering selflessly. Look at verse 21 with me this morning. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. What's, what's the purpose statement that Peter gives us for Christ's suffering? He suffered for us. The creator of the universe. Think about that with me this morning. This, the creator of the universe entered his creation, came down, took part, took, took the flesh that he made on himself and suffered for us. What did 1 John, the verse, we, the verse we read in 1 John, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. How did Jesus walk through suffering? He walked through suffering selflessly. Jesus, Jesus did that for us. He didn't, he didn't deserve it. He didn't earn it. He didn't in any way merit what, what suffering He had. But He did that for us. He walked through suffering selflessly. And he did that for us with, with a purpose, leaving us an example that we might follow in his steps. We saw in First John that we're to walk as he walked. So how do we know how, how Jesus walked? We, we read the Scripture, we read the Word, we study his life because he left us an example that we might follow in his steps. The words that we, that we see there are, are pretty unique words in the New Testament. Example is actually a, an extremely rare word. To my knowledge, this is the only time that particular Greek word is used in all the New Testament. The word example that we see there, the only occurrence is right here. If you translate that word literally, it means an underwriting Think, boy, what's, what's an underwriting? What in the world would that be? Well, in, in, the, in the time here, in, in this day and age that, that Peter was writing, when they were teaching kids, young children, how to write, they would have what's called an underwriting, and, and they would often have something that had, had grooves or notches or, 
or, or the, the figures that they were supposed to be. It was like something they could trace. They could place something over it and they could, they could follow their pen or, or stylus or whatever they were using over the, over the underwriting and it would, it would train their hands how to, how to make the, the characters that they, were, that they were supposed to be learning how to make. So it would be an example alphabet that the children would copy over to learn to write. That's, that's what's being talked about here. That, that Christ suffered for us and He left us an example alphabet. Everybody that's, that's been in school has seen example alphabets, right? And that's, that's the pattern that we, we learn to write. That's how we, that's we learn to write our, our characters, our letters. Well, well, Christ here suffered for us in such a way that He left us an example for us to follow. He's the underwriting for us as we, mo- as we move through suffering to know how to navigate suffering. And we'll see more of what that looked like in a few minutes as we continue moving through this text. But the word follow that we see is also a fairly unique word. It's only used about four times in the New Testament. When you combine the word example with us to follow, that just kind of double strengthens what, what Peter is trying to say. Look to Christ in your suffering. Look to Christ. Watch how He suffered. Observe how He, observe how he suffered. And use Him as the pattern to follow, to know how to suffer in a way that honors God. We see that, that his, his selfless suffering was a willing suffering as well. We, we just read together Philippians 2. He wasn't, he wasn't forced out of heaven. He wasn't kicked out of heaven. He wasn't dragged out of heaven. He wasn't brought to this earth kicking and screaming and, and resisting the whole time. No, he, was, he did that willingly for us. How many of us are, are, are willing to suffer for the, for the benefit of another? That's, that's, a, that's a mighty hard thing to do sometimes, isn't it? For us to, to willingly take on something that we know is going to cause us suffering or trial for the sole benefit of, of another person or another group of people, yet that's what Jesus did for us. That's what He did for us. He suffered for us willingly, leaving us an example so that we might follow in His steps. Look at verse 22 with me. Verse 22 says, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. How else did Jesus suffer for us? He suffered for us selflessly, but He suffered for us sinlessly as well. And sincerely. We're going we're to combine those two together as we look at this verse here, verse 22. He suffered sinlessly and sincerely for us. When I use the word sincere... What I mean is that the definition here that I'm bringing in is free from pretense or deceit, 
not dishonest or hypocritical. His suffering for us was sincere, free from pretense or deceit, not dishonest or hypocritical. We read together already Isaiah 53 as we, as we started our service together, didn't we? Isaiah 53. If you look at Isaiah 53.9 and we think of the sinless and sincere suffering of Christ, look at Isaiah 53 verse 9. They made His grave with the wicked and with a rich man in His death, although He had done no violence. And there was no deceit in His mouth. This was written hundreds of years. Hundreds of years before Christ actually walked on this earth. Yet, we see here He had done no violence. There was no deceit in His mouth. He was sinless and sincere, even through suffering. Suffering is one of those times where we, we are, are tempted maybe greater or as, as greatly as other times in our lives. It is easy to sin during suffering, isn't it? Boy, when, when we feel the pressure and the, the heat and the, the, the friction on our lives, sinning during suffering is one of the our natural responses, right? We, we complain, we grumble, we blame others, we, we, all these things. Yet, believers ought to walk through suffering as Jesus walked through suffering. And so, Peter here shows us the example, the underwriting for us to follow is that Jesus suffered sinlessly and sincerely. Look at Hebrews 4 with me. Just a few pages back. Hebrews 4, 15. Maybe you think, well, you know, yeah, he was Jesus though, and, and so he didn't, really, he didn't really suffer like we suffer, so we can't really use him as a, as a real example. But look at, look at Hebrews 4, 15. The writer to the Hebrew says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus understands the suffering. Jesus understands the temptation, yet without sin. So how did Jesus walk with suffering? How are we called to follow His example as we walk through suffering? We're called to walk through suffering as Jesus did. Selflessly, sinlessly, and sincerely. Keep reading. First part of verse 23 of of 1 Peter 2 says, When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Now anyone here that can say um, they don't struggle 
with, with an improper, a sinful response when you're being reviled, uh, I, I'd like to shake your hand because I don't know that any of us could say that's never a struggle in our, in our spirit, whether or not it, it gets out or not. But when someone is railing on you, what does is, what is our temptation, what does our flesh want to do? Boy, it wants to rail on them right back, doesn't it? Just lash out and, and just, oh. And, and isn't our memory extremely good when someone is re- railing on us? Boy, we can think of everything that person, boy, that's like, you just got instant recall. Boy, this person's done this, and he said that to me, and boy, I saw him treat them like that, or she did this. Boy, we can think of a whole list of things to throw the jabs right back, can't we? Our, our mind is, is, is excellent at, at calling up the sins of others and, and using them to combat and to, to, to revile in return when we are being reviled, when we are being railed on. Boy, we can give it right back. Yet, yet here we see, verse 23a, that Jesus walked through suffering silently. Jesus walked through suffering silently. When he was reviled, he did not revile in, in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. You know, <laughs> they, they struck Jesus and you didn't, hear him, you didn't hear him say back, you do that one more time. There was, there was no threatening from Jesus. He had, he had all the power of the omnipotent God at his disposal. Yet he suffered silently. He took the revile, the reviling of, of his creation. He took, he took his, his sinful creation's sin that was coming right back at him, took it silently. He allowed himself to suffer silently. He didn't revile when he was reviled. Look, look again at Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Well, that was the prophecy hundreds of years before, but, but it did, did it really come true that way? Did, did Jesus really control himself in those situations? Did, did that really come to pass? Look with me at one of the, the accounts in the Gospels, Matthew 27. We're not going to read all the different accounts of the, the night of the crucifixion. But Matthew 27 Starting in verse 11, I'd like to read a little bit of the, the account of the last few days and, and hours that Jesus spent on this earth. Jesus had already been to Gethsemane at this time. He had already foretold Peter's denial. Peter had already denied him. He had already been delivered to Pilate. We see that Judas had already gone out and hanged himself. And then we read in verse 11, Matthew 27, 11 and following. Now Jesus stood before the governor 
And the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus just replied, you have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Look farther on down that chapter, verses 27 and following. Jesus had already been delivered by by Pilate to be crucified. And in verse 27 we pick up and we read, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put on a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. And as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, They compelled this man to carry his cross. When they came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink, mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. And they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. And two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right hand and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you, would who, who, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now. If he desires him, for he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. You notice anything interestingly missing from those texts we see a lot of a lot of people saying things right see the pilot saying things or the chief priests and the scribes and the rulers saying things we see people walking by after he's on the cross mocking and deriding him yet we have no account of jesus responding to any of the any of the the taunting any of the mocking, any of the, the hateful speech that we saw. He suffered silently. Are we, good at, are we good at suffering silently as believers? How are we doing following the underwriting of Christ's example for us? What's our tendency when, when the least little bit of suffering or trials come, boy, be, you get with somebody else and what's the first thing on your mind you want to talk about? 
oh boy, this is, you're never going to believe what's happening to me right now. And, and we just gush. Whatever, whatever is going on, we just, we, we got to tell everybody how miserable we are, don't we? Isn't that, our, isn't that the way we work? Or if somebody's coming to us and, and, and jeering at us or, or, or kind of egging us on, boy, we want to respond quickly and, and, and snap right back at them. We see Jesus here by the power of the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that, that gives us the grace to respond as Jesus responded in trials. We see him depending on the Spirit and allowing people to say all those things, allowing the, the chief priests and scribes to, to mock, and we see the, the physical suffering, the, the twisting of the crown of thorns, and smashing it into his flesh. And yet he suffered silently for us. What else do we learn about Jesus' suffering in this text? Look back with me to, to 1 Peter Chapter 2. The back half of verse 23 says that instead of, of threatening and reviling in return, Jesus continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Boy, what does that mean? He continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Well, we see that Jesus suffered with a superior reliance on God. He, there, was, there was someone greater that he was looking to and entrusting himself to. We can, we can try to trust ourselves all the time for things, don't we? Boy, we... You know, we, we try to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We, we do all these things to try to make it through on our own before we get help, before we turn to help. What's, what's our, you know, our, our pride for us to, to, to go to someone else and say, boy, we, we could use help here. That, that's a humbling thing for us. But we see that Jesus didn't, didn't respond with, with reviling when he was reviled. He didn't threaten when he was being persecuted, but instead he entrusted himself and his, the outcome of his situation to the one who judges justly. He trusted in the sovereignty of God through suffering. That is something that we need to learn as Christians. All of us need to learn that. We, we must trust in the sovereignty of God when we are faced with trials and suffering. We can, we can connive, we can try to figure out, we can try to plan and plot our own ways out of things and, and try to, all this, but, but ultimately when, when we are met with suffering, when we, when we are in the middle of a trial, our response must be we are going to entrust the sovereign one of the universe to do with us what he sees fit. And part of that, we have to acknowledge that what, what he says is good and right might not be what we say is good and right. We have to trust 
that the one who has a loving, kind heart sometimes uses things that don't feel loving and kind to us to bring about good works in us, to bring about good through us, to bring, to bring good to others. Sometimes the, sometimes the suffering and the trials that we have feels anything but good. But we have to trust in the sovereign God of the universe that He is doing what He is doing ultimately for His glory and for our good as believers. How can we, how can we walk like Christ walked through suffering? We can walk through suffering with a superior reliance. Not relying on ourselves. Not relying on, on other people. Not relying on the, the money that we have sitting in the bank. Okay, well, we can always bust into this. If things get really bad, we, we've, got, we've got this we can fall back on. I don't know what your trials are in your lives. We, some of us might have health issues. And our reliance cannot be, ultimately, I know this doctor. He says he can fix me. That's, that's not where we turn. No, we, we, we must rely on the great physician, the God of this universe, the all-powerful one, the sovereign one. Maybe your, maybe your trials aren't, aren't medical. Maybe they're with family, interpersonal relationships with other people. Can't, we can't say, boy, if they just read this book, if they, if they just take time to, to understand what this guy, then we could get along. No. Ultimately, we have to trust that, that the God who is sovereign is bringing these things into our lives. And we have to trust that His work is good for us, through us, and in us. Maybe it's, maybe it's our own children that we look at and we, our hearts are broken for how we see that our, our children are, are, are not following in, in the way that we would have liked to have seen them go? Can we trust that even in, even in heartbreaking situations like that, that, that God is sovereign and good? We can, can't we? So Jesus walked through suffering selflessly. He walked through suffering sinlessly and sincerely. He walked through suffering silently. He walked through suffering with a superior reliance. Lastly, this morning, Peter in verse 24 says to us that that He Himself, Jesus, bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. Jesus' suffering was a suffering that, that he experienced and he walked through that suffering substitutionally. He walked through that for us. He did it for us. It, it brings us back to the, to the beginning when we talked about him walking selflessly for us as an example that we might follow in his steps. But he walked through suffering substitutionally verse 24 he bore our sins in his body on the tree 
Boy, if that, if that doesn't bring you right back to Isaiah 53 in your minds, think of that with me again. Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His stripes, we are healed. Jesus suffered for us as a substitute. Who deserved the treatment that Jesus received on the cross? We did, right? We deserve to to die for our sins. We deserve to have the full measure of God's wrath poured out on us for our sins. But that's not what happens. For all of us who are in Christ, we do not get the punishment for our sins poured out on us. Because Jesus went to the cross as our substitute. He went in our place. He did that for us. First, or excuse me, Second Corinthians five twenty one comes to mind. Second Corinthians five twenty one. Listen to this. For our sake, he made him. God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him, Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. What gospel truth. What good news that when we say gospel, that's what we mean. Good news. What what good news we read. That wow. For our sake, He, God, made Him, Jesus, to be sin. He was the substitute for us. He was the, he was the sponge that absorbed all the wrath of God on our behalf. We deserved it, but He suffered substitutionally for us. So that in Him, we might become the righteousness of God. Stop and think about that. You ever look at yourself in the mirror and say, boy, I'm a spitting image of God's righteousness. I hope not. We don't, we don't, we don't live that way, do we? Positionally, that's who we are in Christ. When God looks at us, He sees us as righteous as His own Son. We are wrapped in His robes of righteousness and God has removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. See, something God can do that we can't do is God can choose not to remember. You and I, we can 
try not to remember, right? What does 1 Corinthians 13 tell us? Love keeps what? No record of wrongs. So he said, okay, I love this person. I'm, I'm not going to keep bringing that up in my mind. I'm going to let it go. And then what happens the next time you see him? Boom. Oh yeah, I remember that person. He did this to me. Mm-hmm. Yep. I remember. Wonder if he'll do that again. Every time I'm with that person, he does this to me. Wonder if that's how it's going to be this time. See, we, we can't choose not to remember. We, we battle those things and we try to, we try to in, in and by God's grace, push them, push them aside and say, God, help me to love this person as I ought to love them and not to keep rehashing all the, the old offenses and all the old hurts, but, but they're still there. But God is different. God has, has said to us, I will remember your sins no more. And he can do that perfectly because he's God. He can choose not to remember our sins. And in Christ, that's what we see. We have become the righteousness of God in Christ. So so John tells us, and Peter tells us, be who you are. Walk like the person that God has made you to be. And we have Jesus as our example for how to navigate life even when we're suffering. We have Jesus as the underwriting that we can trace and follow so that we know how to navigate suffering. Maybe you're sitting here this morning thinking, boy, that was a, that's a pretty tough list. I'm supposed to navigate suffering selflessly? Maybe I can do that a little bit. I'm supposed to navigate suffering sinlessly and sincerely? Boy, we're, that, that's asking a lot. I'm supposed to navigate suffering silently and with a superior reliance on God and, and be willing to do this for other people, substitutionally even? Are we going to be able to do that perfectly? Can we imitate Christ with, with complete accuracy in all these things? No, we're not. We're not going to do that. Paul, even, even the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans, confesses, and we can all understand Paul and, and the battle that goes on in Paul's heart and mind as he says in in Romans, that the things that he wants to do, he finds himself doing the very opposite of. And the things that he doesn't want to do, those sinful things that he's, he, he abhors and hates, he finds himself doing those things. So we know we're not perfect. There was one who was good, right? That is Jesus. And even as Christians, we're not going to get to the point where we're like, I woke up today, I haven't sinned yet, it's almost bedtime, I'm batting a thousand. Here we go. That's, we don't get there. That day is coming. Praise the Lord. That day is coming when all sin will be finally removed from us. When we look at Him face to face and we become like Him because we see Him as He is. But that day is not here yet. 
But we can in some measure and by God's grace imitate Christ. Can't we? You think of, the, you think, have you ever seen uh, you know, a, a field of snow, a yard with a lot of snow in there, not many tracks? And maybe some of us have even had this experience is as either the, the child or the father, but, but you know, you got long-legged dad and he walks through that snow and he leaves, leaves his tracks and then you see a small boy trying to, trying to imitate his dad, right? And he's, he's reaching out and his foot falls short and he's, you see every once in a while he hits the father's footprint but there's a lot of other little footprints all around through that snow. What happens, though, is that boy grows and matures. The next year, it's not quite as hard to hit more of dad's steps, is it? He's able to follow that example a little bit better as that boy grows and matures. And as he grows and matures and gets older and older, pretty soon he's... he's he's doing a much more accurate job of following his dad through the snow. Well, that's the experience that we have as believers. We're never going to be perfect. We're never going to land all of our footsteps in the exact place that Jesus has landed his footsteps. But we are called to imitate. Even Paul said in in. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. We're called to do that even in suffering and trials. We're supposed to imitate Christ. Imperfectly, yes. But we should should be striving to imitate Christ. Striving to walk in the way in which He walked. Peter ends up in verse 25 of chapter 2 by saying, For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Straying like sheep, but we have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. As a result of Christ's work, burying our sins in His body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness and the, the healing that comes from, from His work, we have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. If you're in Christ, that's where we're at today. That's where we are. Once, once we are stray, straying like sheep and now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. And as I think about navigating suffering, walking through suffering as Jesus suffered, I think if, if, we're not, if we're not doing too much stretching here, we can also say that that allows us a gospel opportunity, doesn't it? As, as other people watch us suffer. Maybe it's our children in our home. Maybe it's our neighbors. Maybe it's extended family. Maybe it's friends at work. As they watch us suffer, Hopefully that they can see Christ in us as we imitate Christ and as, as we imitate Him and, and suffer in a way that, that honors Him. Hopefully that they can see 
Christ in us, and we would be able to say with Paul, the things that you see in me that are Christ-like, you should imitate as well. So maybe it's, maybe it's other people in the body. Maybe it's an encouragement to other people in the body to be able to see our suffering in a way that is consistent with how Christ would have us to suffer. And we, we need to remember as well that, that in suffering, God brings suffering to us. God brings trials to us. Not, not to crush and to defeat but to purify, to cause our faith to grow, to, to bring about good things. We have a loving Heavenly Father. And he's, He has not left us to suffer with, without aid. He's not left us to suffer pointless things. He does so because He loves us. May our suffering drive us to imitate Christ in a more accurate way. May others see Christ in us as we suffer. And may it turn to gospel opportunity, both for those in the body and those outside the body. So believers, this morning, walk through suffering as Jesus walked through suffering. Remember this text. May it be an encouragement to you as we move through this week and, and who knows what the Lord brings to our paths. Let's pray this morning. Lord, you are kind and good to us. You have given us so much more than we deserve. You have allowed for us to see in your word Jesus, as an example, you have given us the Holy Spirit and as one that is dwelling within us to enable and to, to convict us of sin and to, to correct us. We have your word that gives us instruction and in righteousness. You have given us grace to obey and to do what you have called us to do. You have so well equipped us, yet we turn from you so often and try to do things on our own. May we rely on you for the, for the big things and the little things in our lives. And may we honor you with the way we walk, even today. It is your name we pray. Amen.